Every life has a story, and every story is worth sharing. Your story, my story, and our story speak of victory and defeat, joy and sorrow, resilience and vulnerability. They are not just our story. They are Christ's story in us. They are Kingdom Stories from Down Under. Among the many people we interview at Kingdom Stories from Down Under, we've never had the opportunity to interview a politician. But tonight, we have someone. I wouldn't say she's a politician. I would say she's an advocate, which is far greater than a politician because this life of uh, being out there in the community and uh, voicing for, for the community has started long before politics. And I'm sure it will continue long after politics. Tonight, I have the privilege to have a Kingdom Stories from Down Under, Marika Grunewald from uh, Australian Christians. <laughs> yes. I mean, well done on the surname. <laughs> that's great. I identified you with Australian Christians because that's a political party. Of course. But I'm sure there's a lot more to you than just a uh, political face. I would hope so, yes. Is it okay when I say that you're more of an advocate than a politician? Absolutely. And I say that often to people, please don't insult me and call me a politician. Oh, then I, because... got, I got this right. Because I haven't, I haven't engaged this, you know. Exactly. I took a risk here. Oh, sorry. Could have been the other way. But you're spot on. You're okay. spot on. But no. I definitely, I do consider myself probably more an advocate than anything else. Um, and prob- probably the anomaly in that sense, because I find these days politicians don't really have a good rep with the community at large, unfortunately. And so that authenticity to me um, is what makes you a good advocate, is that authenticity. Yeah. And I think as an advocate, uh, as I said, it doesn't just stop in that political life. No. With politics, you're a politician for a while. Yes. And then after that, you do something else. That, that's right. Whereas that's now, right. as an advocate, yeah. you have been doing that in various yes. um, leadership roles that you've held. Absolutely. And you will continue that after politics, if there is after politics or whatever you want to do I in the future. so, yeah. And it's interesting because I've always had, since I was little, I've always had this sense of, um, you know, the community and growing up in South Africa too, you're you know, the need is much more in your face as it would be in a country like Australia. So I've always grown up with, I'm very blessed to have grown up with um, a family that has always been very generous uh, and very mindful of the plight of others around them. You know, we we were never the sort of people to go out of sight, out of mind. You know, my grandparents, my parents, incredibly involved in all things community, very generous. Uh, And I mean, that stuff really rubs off on us as kids, which is such a blessing. And it doesn't, this is not in your genetics. This happens because of the values that were passed on as legacy. Absolutely. And that's why I say to people, it is so important, you know, when you are modeling Christ to your kids, Mm. do that in word and deed as well. You know, it's great to be able to, as they did, you know, teach the Bible. But my parents, my grandparents, they were out there. They were physically being those vehicles and that extension of Christ in the community. And that's the kind of stuff that sticks because you see how it changes people. You actually see how that outworking of the Holy Spirit, absolutely how it changes people. And people are so open then to actually go, but what motivates you to be here with us? Amazing opportunity to share the gospel. So you grew up in South Africa, born in South Africa? Born in South Africa, yes. Uh, Your parents, when did they migrate or grandparents? Yeah, so my grandparents, or it was just my immediate family that immigrated about 20-odd years ago. So from, I'm more Aussie from South Africa. Okay. So I'm probably 20, more Aussie yeah. now. And 
to yeah. South Africa from yeah. Germany? No. So my grandparents on my mother's side were of Dutch heritage. Okay. And on my dad's side, I think there's a bit of Scottish and English in there. Okay. But several generations South Africans. Okay. So yeah, they were they were there for a long time before they, you know. Where did you yeah. where were you born? Which Johannesburg. Day? Okay. Yeah, so not as lovely as Cape Town or any of those beautiful places. And Johannesburg's interesting because, again, the social, the political aspects of, yeah. of Johannesburg. And obviously you've got Soweto, which is close to Johannesburg as well. And I remember as um, in primary school, you know, we used to have sporting events there. Yeah. And, you know, driving through the townships and being very confronted with... Uh, what was around you at the time and you know you just took these things for granted this is in the early 90s uh yeah early 90s 2000 so uh 2001 is when we immigrated and came over to australia okay. yeah wow. yeah so um what's the first memory of childhood that you have gosh first memory of childhood probably playing in the backyard with my grandparents so it was at a time where both parents had to work. So, yes. you know, mum and dad worked. Um, what were they doing? Uh, they were, dad was in sales, mum was in sales as well, but dad did FIFO back then even. Oh. So, you know, FIFO was kind of part of my life since I was a baby, really. Oh. Dad worked away, uh, worked with a mining company, uh, and also worked through Africa extensively. Yeah. And I think growing up too, you know, dad seeing what not-for-profits were doing in some of these Northern African countries. So a lot of that stuff, you know, he always used to share in the stories of things he would see. Yeah. So again, the social aspect was, was very much entrenched growing up. But dad did sales, mum did sales. They went to work soon after I was born because, you know, you couldn't really afford to not work. Yeah. Um, and so my grandparents looked after me. Well, my grandma was the primary caregiver because at that time, granddad worked too. Um, and I just remember, oh, my grandma was this incredible person, loved God, used to write the most incredible poetry. Wow. Just in English or in South Africa? Both. In both. She just had this way There's with no South words. Africa, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. In South African, yeah. which is so many different languages in itself. Sure. But um, she used to write this, this beautiful poetry and I had such a rich childhood and the earliest memories are actually of me spending that time with her and just how she, she raised me. It was just beautiful. such a blessing. No other siblings? I have a younger sister, okay. Kizan. So she's the baby of the family. She's 21 yeah. uh, and she's in the army. So. Wow, Australian army. Huh? Yes. Amazing. Yes. So she is an incredible sports person, played state soccer, Whoa. love her to bits. I shall always be the baby of the family, even what though she's pretty much an Yeah, I did. I um, did state athletics and netball. So, because you, I mean, if she's good at sports, uh, somehow it runs in the family, doesn't it? It does. Yes, my mum was incredibly talented. She was an incredible sprinter and athlete. Okay. And so, yeah, just fostered that in us as kids. Uh, I loved athletics and netball. Um, did that fairly well when I was younger. I don't know what happened in high school. I think you just. I just got lazy or something. <laughs> so I'm doing, cool, yeah, and I just thought, oh, I don't want to do athletics anymore. And so I kept with netball, which I really enjoyed. And still to this day, I love it. Um, so, yeah, very rich childhood opportunity and encouragement to, to do whatever, but do it well. 
So how old were you when you migrated to Australia? I was 13. I was okay. 13 and my sister was just a baby. So, so pivotal, pivotal age. Uh, Very you much had, so. You had friends, obviously. You were building up. Just yes. finished primary school, going into high school there. Yes. Is there a mid? Uh, is it a middle school there, or how does it work in South Africa? Yeah. So in South Africa, we had you had your primary, and then you go straight into high. So year seven um, was the end of primary school over okay. there. Okay. So year eight was. Uh, year eight was the start of high school. Yeah. So you finished primary school, or just one year short? Yeah, finished primary school. My parents wanted to, you know, wanted like to, right. yeah, uh, have me have finished primary school first, which was great to be able to do that yeah um and so yeah i started high school here and it was a huge change because i skipped year eight when we immigrated oh and went straight into year nine so it was a culture shock a learning shock but you know god god was so faithful um, yeah. really carried and gave me the grace and when, were, you, yeah. were you quite independent in your learning or you needed a lot of support uh, I was quite independent, but the thing is, you went from doing school, and I was very blessed because I grew up bilingual, so English was always part of my growing up. I went to an English kindergarten. So English was your first language or Afrikaans? Afrikaans was. Okay. Yeah, but uh, I think my parents recognised fairly early on that, you know, it'd be good to be able to raise yes. me with both. So yeah, went to an English kindy, but of course... Starting high school and doing maths and science and everything in English. Oh, so you you were doing the school, school in Afrikaans. Afrikaans and English was just a subject. English was just a and subject. And now everything was English yes. and no Afrikaans. No Afrikaans. So everything now, yeah. concepts, foundations. Yeah. And of course, not... Only maths was the same. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> music. But I still go, even how people explained maths and English, I went, oh my goodness, this is what so are they complicated. Yeah. Um, so that was a big, a big learning curve and just really relying on God because, wow, it was, you know, you're, you're trying to adapt, you're trying to make friends, you're trying to work out what this environment of school is going to look like, where you fit into it. It could have broken you. It could have really, you know, and when I look back on it and again, so amazing. We had a school chaplain yeah. at my high school. Public school. I didn't go to private yeah. school. My parents didn't have the money for it. But we had a school chaplain. And he just every now and then would check in and go, hey, how are you going? Um, and, of course, me knowing God and loving God and going, hey, there's a chaplain here. How fantastic. Um, I really found that so helpful. So you knew what a chaplain's role was? Yeah. Well, because a lot of knew... students would never know what a chaplain does. Well, that's I just thought he was a pastor. And then, of course, School the concept pastor. yeah, concept of chaplaincy then, I thought, wow, this is a great, um, great thing to have. Because in South Africa, it's very different. Schools, assemblies, God is part of... Yeah, everything. Everything. Public schools, no problem. Exactly. So for me, it was just Prayer, the assumption yeah. you pray. I mean, we had assemblies every day. Yeah. Uh, start with prayer praise and worship it's just part of part of your schooling yeah so when i came to australia i mean it was great to have this chaplain but not a lot of people talked about god mm -hmm. so it was really great having marcus because yeah being a school chaplain um i had that still a bit of support and connection there yeah that's nice yeah so great. why did your parents migrate to australia do you know I do. Look, I think it's a combination of factors and I know it's something my parents prayed about and thought about long and hard before they, they moved. Um, but 
as amazing and beautiful as South Africa is, I think my parents recognised that there wasn't a future for me or my sister. Yeah. Um, and it was sad because, you know, you could be a really bright kid, but you won't be able to find a job. And, of course, the crime, yeah. uh, the crime aspect was very, very, very bad. Um, and my dad actually... Just before we immigrated, he got hijacked and shot. So it was the year before we were meant to move over. And as horrible as it was, I think it just solidified in them that, you know what, we're making the right decision. Um, How did that happen? Was he driving from Yeah, so Dad was driving, pulled over to write something down. And how is this, right? God, just God's hand over all of it. But... Dad pulled over and it was a road that sort of rang along, ran along this huge ditch. Yeah. And Dad pulled over and he saw this car pulling up behind him and he thought, oh, this looks dodgy. Anyway, he thought he'll give him a benefit of the doubt. This guy comes to his window, taps on the window, and just as my dad wanted to pull away, he saw this guy pulling out a gun. So the first shot went through my dad's arm. Oh, he shot. He yeah. Didn't even just... No, no. The first shot went through dad's dad's um, arm, and so the the car veered sort of halfway into the ditch. And dad kind of said, "Look, take whatever, do whatever, please. You know, just do what you need to do." Climbed out the other side of the of the ute, and then this other guy walks up to him, looks him in the eye, and says, "Sorry," and shoots my dad again in the stomach. Oh. So dad's going, I I mean, still to this day, I don't know what went through dad's head, right? But he just so happened to be in a position where if if he was just 30 centimetres lower into that ditch, no car passing past would have seen him because they jumped in the ute and sped off. But a kid from school saw my dad just as they happened to in those 10 seconds driving past saw my dad lying there recognized him and they stopped and picked him up and took him to the hospital so it all happened so they stole the youth and left your dad Dad. to die on the side of the road yeah so the hijack was it just for the youth or hoping that there's more in the car sometimes they do but look the sad thing with south africa is it's now it's it's the brutality, you know. It's just killing for the sake of killing, you know. I mean, my dad freely relinquished yeah, his car. Yeah. His, his, the, he said the briefcase, money, wallet. Um, but it's almost like it, it wasn't at that time, you know, it started being way more brutal than for the need of a, of a good. It was just for the sake of... So they took him to hospital and he survived? Yeah, Dad wow. survived. Yeah, till to this day. And he won't mind me saying this, but, you know, we always joked because my dad's a, you know, he's a well-built man. And the doctor said, you know, if my dad didn't carry an extra bit of weight, you he know... Have made it. That's right. So he still uses it till this day to go, see? Yeah. It's good that I'm, that I'm a bit more Imagine solid. Imagine if you had been there, you know, you wouldn't have survived. <laughs> that's right. That's right. So... Yeah. So we often, you know, um, yeah, reflect on that story and, you know, in a sense that was the final deciding factor for my dad because he said, how would he have coped if something like that happened to my mum or my sister or my myself? It must have been a big shock for the whole family though. It was. It was, yeah. Just the fact that he survived. What a relief. That's right. And, but, you know, people in South Africa, you know, you learn to live with it every yeah. day. You know, 
it was only when we moved to Australia that I realised, wow, you know, barbed wire fencing around a house, probably it, it's not a normal thing. Or, no. you know, we used to have these security doors before you yeah. go into Screens. bedrooms. You know, we'd have, we paid subscriptions to have security companies, you know. Monitoring. Absolutely. Because was, you had to. Yeah. So... On one hand, it's so sad because South Africa is such an incredible country with yeah. culture and so much that makes it such an awesome place. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of healing that needs to take place, a lot of repentance too. Yeah. So yeah, lucky so you're back to in have Australia, that. Um, uh, going to high school. What high school yes. did you go to? Kareem Senior Kareem. High School. Great school. Yeah. Yeah, it was a really, really great school. I loved it and. Interestingly, the, the, that year when we immigrated was the year that um, Australia granted a lot of uh, visas for South Africans for mining companies. You know, sure. FIFO was kicking off. So there was probably about, you know, 20-odd South Africans that started at the Kareen. same time. At Kareen. Oh, beautiful. So You made some friends easily. It's weird. I think people were just, as a young person, you probably were really mindful that you didn't want to kind of you know clustering your little group sure. so even though we all had this common understanding and we were from this common place none of us were friends oh. <laughs> we all had like our little groups but I think we were all just very mindful that hey we had to adapt and we yeah. couldn't stay in our little South African bubble um, and my parents encouraged that too you know like try and try and make friends and think outside yeah. the box and so that's and church wise yeah church wise and um, we were connected with the church, um, you know, when we came to Australia, several, several churches. Um, we actually started out at a South African church as well. As you do. As you do. A uh, good community of people. And then, you know, as Eventually you... end up there afterwards. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and we always thought, you know, you move I mean, to the other side of the world to join a South African church, yeah. you know, the irony of it. But it was a, yeah, good community. And like I said at the time, a lot of South Africans coming in. That 2000... 2000 to 2001, a lot of South Africans immigrated. Yeah. So um, we were very blessed, you know, because had a good network of people and made mm -hmm. friends. And then, of course, you know, the rest is history in a sense. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah, really good. And uh, you, uh, Christian life, in a sense, family, very strong in their faith, your, your parents? Yeah, Both they mom are. and dad? Now, and look, life happens as it does, unfortunately. So my parents, we immigrated and um, we were here for about 10 years and my parents got divorced, unfortunately. Oh. But that's also a story of God's redemption now, looking back on it as, as to how they are now. But that was a bit of a, you know, a sort of spanner in the works. Yeah. Um, and I think that's what a lot of people perhaps don't realise. Yes, we, we loved God and we cling to God. It was awesome. But, you know, there's a lot of uh, emotional things that take place when you immigrate. You know, you leave family behind, yeah. you leave friends behind. Yeah. Um, and FIFO life, you know, it takes its toll. You know, yeah. dad till this day, you know, will always encourage people when he meets them and goes, you know, please think twice before you do FIFO or if you do. Yeah put a time limit on it and stick to it. Yeah. So, you know, all those, all that wisdom and hindsight's been great. Um, yeah. But, you know, they're still, still great friends. My dad remarried mm -hmm. um, and, you know, that's been a blessing too. So it's, you know, it, even though it hasn't turned out how perhaps in their heads they thought it would, yeah. um, God is still across it all. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. When, when did you give your life to the Lord? 
I was 10 years old. Oh, in South Africa. Yes. And I, I, you know, they often say, oh, you can pinpoint a moment or you can pick a moment. And I knew, I remember at the time our church building wasn't available. So we had it in my primary school. Yeah. And I just remember, you know, really simply um, the pastor at the time going, you know, if you want to give your heart to God. And I remember looking up at my mum and, you know, mum was standing there. And I just, I felt this warmth and this joy. And I thought... I know what this means. I know what it means to to do this. Yeah. And so, yeah, I was 10 years old in my primary school building. And, of course, you know, yeah, I remember that so vividly because I just remember the warmth. And, you know, of course, like I said to you, just at the time, uh, being very involved with outreaches and things and just knew God was so, so real. So when did you actually get baptised? When I was 18. In Australia? In Australia. What yeah. church? Uh, C3 Joondalup. Okay. Yeah, we're a small group of people back then. Um, but yeah, so was you started years old. at Heaven Heights and then you went to Joondalup or? We were always, we were always at uh, Joondalup. at the small campus. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then, yeah, did youth there, we was very much involved with youth there and got baptized there. Um, yeah. You know, we had John Finn Kelly here. Yeah, I, I saw one of the episodes. I mean, yeah. John Finkeldy has been part of the C3 or, you know, gosh, Hepburn Heights since forever, since I can remember. Yeah, and Shiloh before to, that. Yeah and, we, yeah, and Seth, I remember Seth at this stage, he was a pastor, a youth pastor at C3 Hepburn, and he's now running a church in, I think, San Diego. It's, <laughs> just, world. it's just amazing. So, yeah, so yeah very, um, very blessed to have had that. And, of course, you know, being baptized again brought a, brought a whole different dimension. level of growth and dimension yeah. to my faith. Yeah, definitely. Did you experience a Holy Spirit renewal as well? You went into that world I, or? Do you know I did, but I think when you're 18, I mean, I knew what I was doing. I understood yeah. and I was ready for it. Um, it took me a couple of years, though, to really reconcile and work out what the Holy Spirit wanted me to do and sure. what I needed to do. And so uh, I went through uni. That was the time my parents got divorced. So there was so much happening another, for me. Another curveball. Yeah. But, I mean, I always knew at the back of my head that, you know, God was going to call me back and there would be this moment where I know that, okay, I can't run any longer. I can't ignore it any longer. Yeah. Um, and. And yeah, sort of going through uni, finishing uni, um, I just had this... What did you study? I did community development and politics. There you go. Yeah. So very, very fortuitous at at the time because I didn't think this is where I would end up. But yeah, um, yeah, loved it. I wanted to be a pilot originally. Oh, and you probably would have made it. Yeah. And I really loved it. And my dad was so supportive. I mean, I did work experience up at Jandicott. I used to love driving to Jandicott. Actually, I know know a uh, a flight instructor. He comes here. He's, he's South African. Is he? Yeah. And uh, yeah, he go. comes here on Friday mornings at prayer at oh, 6 a.m. Wow. We have a men's prayer at 6 o'clock in the oh, morning on Friday mornings. God. Need to get a few tips again. And uh, he lives here in Madley. <laughs> okay. And he's an instructor. Wow. Great guy. Great guy. South African. So one day, if I want to pick it back up, he's yeah. the guy. He's the guy. Yeah. <laughs> he's the guy. Um, so you did fly. Uh, you went for a work experience. Yes. And I loved it. Got my student pilot's license. Oh, you did? Yeah. And so... So you did a few hours. Yeah. So the next step was the private, private license. license. yeah. And I just realized one day dad said to me, 
can you see yourself doing this for the rest of your life? And I kind of had this epiphany and went, oh, flip, like indefinitely sitting in a cockpit with one other person. Heck no. (laughs) (laughs) I cannot do this for the rest of my life. I have to move. So literally, I remember it was a couple of weeks and I changed pretty much the whole course of what I was doing. And, And that was the point where I said, Lord, you show me what you need me to do. Okay. You open the doors, you guide me. And of course, community development and politics was the avenue. Was the avenue. Yeah, and praise so God. So what was your first job out of uni? First job out of uni was working with a advocacy organization called Create. Mm-hmm. And they actually advocated for kids in care. So that was a huge eye-opener for me. Yeah. Um, because when I was younger, we actually adopted a little girl as well. And so that awareness was always there. In and South Africa? Or here? In South Africa. Okay. Yeah. And, and South Africa had did, orphanages. Did you bring her here as well? No, no. Oh. So luckily it worked out that her her dad was able to look after her. look after them oh, again beautiful. which was amazing because they were reunited yeah, and it was yeah. beautiful um but the irony then of course finishing uni and then ended up working for this organization that advocated for kids in care uh was a huge eye-opener mm. huge um another world Definitely. And most people are not familiar with. And I wasn't aware of it. You know, I often thought that, you know, I mean, my family was by no means perfect. Sure. Um, But when you're really sitting down with young people who have probably lived in 20-odd houses by the time they're 18, it's just heartbreaking. Yeah. So I really love that that, that job. And, again, an eye-opener for me, uh, the difference between bureaucracy and policy and actually what happens at a community level. Yeah. And I just thought, why is this so hard? Why yeah. is change to affect change and make life easy for people? Why does it have to be so cumbersome? And why does it have to be so covered in red tape? Um, and I actually heard last week that they're now changing some of the legislation yeah. so that kids, after they turn 18, that they still have some support from the government, which is so crucial. So mm. I'm really grateful for that. So you shifted something. Well, gosh, team effort. That's what I often say. You know, you it's work... so hard to do, but it's so worth it. Yeah, and it's because, long-term yeah. stuff. Absolutely, it's, it's not what you do; it's what you shift. Yes, very true. Yeah, very true. And you know, you don't realize it at the time. You sort of go, "Lord, this is." It's seems... good that you don't. Yeah, yeah. Because pride will kick in. Yeah, that, that's that's a good point, actually. And yeah. uh, overachievement, and you become content, and you think, oh, "I've done this." It's, I think God keeps us humble yeah. in that way and also makes mm. us, it, it uh, provides a platform for the next, yes. you know, so yeah. otherwise you think I've achieved too much already, you know. I can, and I'm done. Yeah, I've done <laughs> yeah, my part. Great. I well mean, done, come on guys, you know, That's for the right. next 20, 30 years, the kids in this country will benefit from this. <laughs> You know, I can, you know. That's right. Pat on the back. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, yeah. hope never get like that. And yeah. you're right. I mean, that is one of the things that, yeah, you always pray, Lord, you know, just just keep keep us humble and keep yeah. us in the right area. Um, so that was my first job. Worked with a lot of youth, a lot of young people. Um, and, yeah, like I said, it was uh, it was an eye-opener. Yeah. Boys? Alcohol? Uh, gambling do you know drugs <laughs> yeah you know a lot of sexuality stuff like even then i mean a lot of the young people were struggling with their gender ideologies they yep. were struggling to find their place in the world uh relationships um there were a lot of younger girls who were Did pregnant it shock you? 
It did a little bit. It did a little bit. Um, because, I mean, you were sheltered, obviously. I was sheltered, but I, I think, I, to me, it was the first time I was confronted with the fact that, you know, before I would think, oh, how, how can people get themselves in these situations? And yeah. how is it that young people can yeah. be so unwise and so this and so that? And so I, I realized, you know, gosh, this is how, you know, we're a yeah. product of our social environment. So yeah. for these kids, the fact that um, they were going through this stuff, it was just a product of their social environment. Yeah. So, you know, especially the younger girls who um, – all they wanted to do, they just wanted identity and to feel secure. So, you know, some of the girls were 18 and getting married. Yeah. Um, falling pregnant. Um, and then, of course, you know, not dealing with a lot of the emotional stuff. There would then be things that, you know, you'd have to deal with a lot of the young people when they are going through pregnancies. Yeah. And so it was it was a huge learning curve for me, but also a huge wake-up call. You were also young. That's it right. It could have been you. It, That's it, right. I mean, you were managing them, but... It was almost peer-to-peer. <laughs> yes, -peer. I mean, I was 20, you know, three or whatever it was. I some felt of them like were older than you. That some of them were. And I, and it was just incredible at the time because I remember thinking, you know, these young people are so resilient. Yeah. Um, and a lot of them truly, they really wanted to have a different life sure. for, for their kids. And so that was the driver for a lot of these young people. They were so desperate to have their own kids in a sense because yeah. they wanted it to be different. Um. And I remember one of the other things that was really an eye-opener too, which they've now changed, is young people, when they were leaving care at the age of 18, you were no longer, you know, under the care of the state. So they just gave them a black rubbish bag to put all their stuff in and yeah. then off you go. Yeah. And I, we could not believe that this is how the government actually treated young people. I mean, what does that say to a young person? Yeah. So that was one of the things, and at the time, um, my manager was very instrumental uh, in changing the legislation so that every young person had a bag, you know, they had their own bag, their own suitcase, just giving them dignity yeah. and a sense of worth. An identity. Yeah, an identity, and a, exactly. You know, saying, you can do this, this is, it's a graduation into something Absol beautiful, it's the beginning exactly. of, of your adult life. Exactly. And for a lot of them, you know, what we perhaps receive from our mum our mom or our dad, you know, encouragement and direction, a lot of these kids didn't have that. Did you have a crisis period when you were a teenager? Not when I was a teenager. Um, Early 20s? Yeah, probably early 20s, going through uni. Um, With a divorce? Yeah, I think so. But not in the sense of, you know, questioning God or rebelling. I just I just went through this stubborn phase where I thought, Lord, what the heck? Yeah, are you real or are you for real? <laughs> you know, like I, I, I remember never doubting it, but I always used to, oh gosh, I used to ask questions, you know. Good. I really used to go, God, like why? And I remember with my sister at the time, you know, uh, dad was out of the picture for a little bit. So, you know, mum and I were sort of, you know, caregivers for my sister and I would do uni. Uh, work three jobs. My mum worked three jobs. So, you know, it Life's was... Life's expensive in Australia. You it was South a, Africa was expensive. Yeah, it was a hectic time, you know. So it's what just, jobs were you doing? A restaurant? I was working, yeah. I was working as a barista. I did sales during the day. I worked at a Chinese restaurant on the weekends, five bucks an hour. Looking back on it now. You, um, you'd do it all over again. You would. <laughs> yes, you would. Probably. I would too. <laughs> I've done it all. <laughs> I just worked every, everything that yeah. was available where I could find a job. And, you know, I was so lucky, praise God, because 
everything I applied for at the time, you know, luckily I was able to have a job. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was a hard time. You know, mum was working day shifts, night shifts. I think she, I don't know, she ran on a couple of hours of sleep for years. I don't know how she did it. Um, but, you know, I got Kizan through school um, and then slowly, you know, the restoration started and, you know, started talking to dad again and, you know, mum and dad started sort of mending that relationship again and, you know, that took a while, you know, and I think as a young person, so much of my life was wrapped up in that, like you said, that comfort and, oh, yeah, we're security. a godly family, you know, yeah. we were right, we love Jesus, how does this happen to us? This can't happen to us. No. Um, and it did. Yeah. <laughs> so... Uh, it was, and there's yeah. also a stigma attached to it, especially in the Christian circles. Absolutely, uh, with a traditional view, also yeah. culturally, because you know, mm. the people knew you, South Africans knew you, and they knew the situation. And you know, at the time, it's a small community. It's a small community. Yeah. that's the thing. And now we're we're a bit wiser, but you know, I remember at the time. Um, it's great to be able to have a community of church people praying for you and partnering with you and caring for you. But I remember at the time thinking like they need tools, like people yeah. need tools, sure. they need counseling or they need yeah. something to help yeah. them. Um, and so I think that's something the church has really grown into and doing a bit better now yeah. in, you know, instead of sort of going, oh, they're going through a marriage issue or, oh gosh, this is too tricky for the church to handle. Yeah. Um, we're actually a bit more aware of that sort of stuff now mm. and more able uh, to speak to families who are perhaps going through through a, a situation. You know, like it's that. interesting. Uh, if you go in a court or into a mediation meeting with a judge, mm. um, what I notice, what they do is mm. they ask you questions to make you feel guilty. <laughs> and they do the oh, same no. to the rest, uh, to the other person. So even though you, you may seem like you're a victim in the whole thing, they will let you, mm. uh, you know, they'll drill you down until you realize that you're also guilty and the other person also guilty. So they don't give... So then you begin to see yourself guilty and uh, you repent and you make it up. So a lot of the times that's why mediation happens in front of the judge, uh, you know, when they have hearings, because the judges know how to help you mm -hmm. see yourself as you are Gosh, I wish we messed up. Them. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he's not there to boost your ego at all. He's actually there to kill your ego yeah. to such an extent <laughs> that you realize, hang on, I'm that bad. Really and then, then he'll talk to him as well. And he gets that. And then he'll go back to her <laughs> and he'll say, you know, at the end of this, yeah. you will lose it all. Both of you. Yeah. You will lose your assets. You will lose your family. You will lose everything you worked for. Mm. Now you think about it. Is it worth it? Do you want to go to court? Mm. Do you want to split us up? Mm. And it's so confronting. And yes. a lot of the times they say, no, we'll fight this on. And then he says, well, there's something else mm. here that is much greater than the problem. Yeah. There's problems behind the problems that you haven't sorted out. Yes. And Gosh. I think that's why uh, a lot of the issues are, are out there. And, I mean, the family courts, how they're geared up anyway, it, it is a bit of a mess. Um, and it's I, a, Yeah, and it's, it's a business. It's almost, they promote this. Yeah. We live in a very, very 
painful in yes. society. And, you know, the litigation yeah. side of it too. Oh. You know, family law makes a killing. Like, yeah. and I remember at the time... Well, lawyers do. And everybody else except, except them too. Yes. But that's the thing, you know, the, the, yeah. the people that are the worst off, unfortunately, are the, the parents and the kids. The kids are even worse. Yeah. And it, it, it does, you know, at the time you... Perhaps, you know, parents, they can't see, they're just caught up in the hurt of it yeah. and the emotion of it. You know, you're not thinking rationally or no. clearly or anything like no. that. Um, so, yeah, I think even mediation services have come a long way to actually try and remedy yeah. a lot of that before it gets to a court phase. But unfortunately, you know, um, in my parents' case, you know, it, it had to go through the courts, which was unfortunate. Yeah, Hindsight's a lovely thing, you know. Um, but, yeah... One thing I think here too is is the family law courts need a massive reform, mm. massive, massive reform, um, especially around the area of mediation and um, how quickly governments issue or how quickly the courts issue restraining orders and yeah. things like that. Um, because alienation uh, is a big thing in Australia too, Par well, parental alienation, you know. We've got, I think we are the most fatherless nation in the world. Yeah. We've killed the dads yeah. in this process, so it's quite painful. Yeah. When did you get married? When? Gosh, six years ago. <laughs> okay. So, 2014, I think it oh, was. Great. Yes. Yeah, How so, did you meet your uh, husband? Yeah, so uh, Rian and I met through church. Okay. Uh, my mum was actually going to this church at the time. Mm hmm and so Rian's always was always part of the church, and so it was in that process of me, you know, coming back to church, and Mum was like, "Hey, you know, come back, come come with me and see what it's like." And so yeah, started going back to church, and um, just wanted to, you know, find God for me again, you know, instead of sort of being caught up in all these other things. And you always think that, right? Sure. And then in the midst of all of this, you know. You meet your husband. Oh. <laughs> so it was worked out well. Um, but yeah, so Rian and I, yeah, dated, got married in Bali, which was awesome. Lucky nice. that we could do that. Um, and we had all our close family and friends just on this week of sort of wedding, you know, with How us. How did he propose to you? Um, so <laughs> Rian took me to a V8 track. <laughs> Because <laughs> I love fast cars. Oh, you love fast cars. What do you drive? <laughs> yeah. um, I drove a Ferrari. We had He had a Lambo. I had a Ferrari and I was doing um, like my laps. And then he had a different placard for every lap that we did. And okay. I just remembered going, oh, man, like I really want to finish this lap. <laughs> and this guy's like, oh, there's a sign. You know, they had to actually point me to the fact that here's this poor guy With standing the on the side of this track going, uh, hello, did you see my signs? Um, so, yeah, we um, yeah we did the, did the uh, racing track and, yeah, just had a day of, yeah, just spending time together and it was really, really good. You said yes? Yes, I did. <laughs> <laughs> you knew exactly. In the midst of all yeah. of that, yeah. So, so did he buy you a fast car after that? Oh, no, I got jibbed. I got jibbed. <laughs> <laughs> it will come. That's right. And it was so funny because at the time, he gave me like this really, like this little made up like ring, temporary ring. And I remember going, oh, 
Great. Like, how do you propose to someone and you don't even have their, their real ring there? But it was this part of Rian just, you know, like knowing what I'm like and just, you know, kind of going, ha-ha, sucker, you know, as part of the engagement day. And then obviously hadn't got the ring later. But, yeah, it was a good day. Really, really good day. Wonderful. Why yeah. Bali? Um, we just loved it. We we loved the idea of, of actually going somewhere and having uh, family and friends just in a relaxed environment too. No other agenda. Just you had to be there basically in a yeah, resort. And well, we just loved it. We loved which, Bali. Which resort was it? Uh, it was uh, the Royal Peter Maha in Ubud. Okay. So it was a beautiful venue next to the um, Agum River. Yeah. Really lovely setting, lush and green. Um, and we did. Um, Later, after we got married, we did a mission trip there too. So it just really had a heart for the people. So you flew a pastor from Australia there? Um, we had a different guy from church do our do okay. ourselves because at the time actually we were in a like a pastor handover at the church, okay. so we didn't actually have someone to marry us. <laughs> so so someone from church did our did our vows and things like that, which is really special. We've done I've done a few weddings in Bali. Yeah, just fly in there, do the wedding, fly back, fly back. Not <laughs> bad, hey. Yeah. I mean, it's a very spiritual place, so I think um, yeah. you know. For us, I just remember um, our song was It Is Well uh, by Christine DeMarco, the song that you walked down the aisle to. And um, a lot of one of this Balinese girl came up to me afterwards and she goes, beautiful song, beautiful song. And, you know, we just shared about Jesus. Jesus. Yeah. And, yeah. They're so open to it. Yeah. They're so open to it. And um, I think, yeah, we just fell in love with the people and just thought, you know, it's a holiday. Yeah. People actually get to spend a week together. And you oh, know what? It was beautiful. We it just, just it was awesome. The the togetherness. We had a yeah. And you didn't go yeah. away for the honeymoon, you stayed there with them. We just stayed there. Yeah, yeah. It was so good. Yeah. So we had um at the time we had just this yeah, just this great package where we could spend time at yeah. um, one of the resorts that's no longer there actually i think it's trump used to be trump's resort or there you go. or something um but it was just great you know yeah. really good uh, really chilled um you don't have to leave the resort you can just stay there all day you yeah know. you could but i mean we enjoyed sort of venturing oh, yeah. out and but everything's day there. tours and yeah, yeah the buses and the bmos oh gosh i've never been a bus person i always said to Rian, if if we do that kind of thing we just do our own thing we yeah. go off the beaten track but it was it was a really great time yeah, nice. yeah. australian christians yes you began a journey in the political world yeah, I did. What attracted you to that? I did. Was it an invitation or was it something that you pursued? Do you know, it's so funny because I spoke to um, one of my managers, previous managers the other day, who was my manager at Prison Fellowship. And she always used to joke and said, Marika, this, this job where you're in now, this is temporary. She goes, I always watch Q&A yeah. and I always picture you on a Q&A panel. And I go, yeah, yeah, you know, whatever. Because yeah. I'd always go, this is ridiculous and how is this legislation like this? And, yeah. da, 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 da. and so I just remember at the time going, you know, what What could it look like? What is What could it look like if I were to get involved in things politically? And sure. honestly, I had no idea of Christian parties. Here. Any parties. I, had, I mean, I had no idea of even politics or anything really. Um, and it was so funny. I was going through our emails one day, clearing out the admin emails, and there was this Christian jobs email yep. and Australian Christians. And I thought... 
that's bizarre. Anyway, opened it up and they were looking for a state director at the time. And I thought, oh, I don't know if I'm, you know, nearly qualified enough to, you know, apply for this job. But I did anyway, (laughs) as you do. And so, yeah, several weeks later, you know, went through the application process, through the interview process and got the job. Yeah, Congratulations. didn't think I would. <laughs> so, so you're you two go. or three years now in the job? Five. Five years, my I, word. I know, I just, it's gone so quick. Um, so you have yeah. an office here in Western Australia? We do, we have a full functioning office in Osborne Park. We've mm-hmm. actually, we were in a very small office in Vic Park previously. Yep. And uh, we just we just felt last year that God was really calling us out and, and to have our own space. Yeah. And so we, yeah, took the leap of faith and signed a lease on, on a large office. That's enough space for meeting rooms and everything, yeah. boardroom. Discussions. And, yeah, we got it at a really good price. God provided the space. Um, our landlord's this awesome guy who we always talk about God. Yeah. It's so cool. Um, and the whole building now... Like, it's so awesome because God, I always pray, oh, Lord, just, just give us opportunities to sure. for people to just have a different, perhaps, understanding of who Christians are and yeah. how they think and what they do. And, you know, through this building, you know, we've been able to get to know all the people in this building. As and, you do. You know, it's just been really great and just encouraging them. So how many on the team here in Western Australia? So uh, we're... We've got a council of 10, and then we're about up to four staff at any given time. So I'm full-time, and then we've got a business manager who's there three days a week. Beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. uh, What are you fighting at the moment? (laughs) Gosh, that's the million-dollar question, isn't it? Um, For us, last year, one of the main things when we were praying in the lead-up to the election um, was about the protection of the innocent. Yeah. And I always remember thinking, Lord, like, what does that mean? Um, and through that, a lot of the child protection bills have come across my desk. Um, a lot of the inquests that were actually done to some of the youth and child suicides up yeah. north in the Kimberleys. Um, and a lot of those recommendations that the coroner put in place to look after kids and their environments the government's been dragging their feet on it. Yeah. So for us, even last year, a big part of what I'm doing now is, and I've actually got a couple of meetings this week too, with several members of parliament for the regions to actually say, look, what has actually happened as a result of this inquest? You know, the government agreed to all these things and yet young people, children are still committing suicide. I mean, it's atrocious. So the child protection side for us, I feel, is sort of our next frontier as far as as legislation goes. Um, Religious freedom, that's sort of federally always on the radar. I've got a bit of a different viewpoint on that bill, but that's sort of me. Um, I just think it's it's dangerous when you legislate things like, you know, religious freedom. Yeah. You know, we're looking at it from a Christian point of view. Sure. But, you, you know, to. so is every other cult and religion. Yeah. And yeah. they'd be protected yeah. under this bill. So we have to be very careful what we push for in that sense. Um, but, yeah, from a, from a priority point of view, um, young people, children, the vulnerable, the weak, that's been a really the big... Those who don't have a voice. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what Christians should do. Exactly. Be a exactly. Voice. And you hear about the hot button topics. Like I yeah. said, 
um, a couple of weeks ago. You know, we hear about religious freedom and we hear about the, um, you know, the gender and the transgenderism issue and a lot of young people struggling with gender dysphoria. And you hear about those things a lot. And we should talk about it. It's sure. important. Um, but when it comes to kids... I feel that's probably an area that we've really overlooked as the church, yeah. um, as a community of people. We've really overlooked how we actually get involved with child protection. You know, it's interesting when we go overseas to the missions, we all focus on children ministry. Yes. Yet here yes. in Australia, we focus on everything else but children. Isn't that sad? Absolutely right. You know, we go to yeah. Indonesia, we go to the Philippines, we go to India. The needs the in our kids, backyard. The kids there, yes. they you know, they sing, they worship, they know Bible yes. verses. Yes. They they drilled so well. Yes. You come here, our kids don't even know a Bible verse. No. They don't even know the songs. At Sunday school yes. they play games. Yes. At youth they play games and ping pong. Yes. You know, there's not we, we don't answer that need, which is very unfortunate. And we have to be very aware, too, spiritually of, of what's going on in, yeah. in WA and Australia in that sense because, you know, when when a nation so squeezes out all forms of Christianity and talking about Jesus and, you know, that that, that has repercussions. Of course. You know. Um, on our watch. Yes, that's right. And, again, I was saying to my pastor a couple of weeks ago, we've so removed ourselves from these important conversations, we've created a perfect gap for yeah. something to come in and impose that. Of yeah. course it will. So I think as Christians, it's a real wake-up call. Um, I'm not saying be combative or be aggressive, but, yeah. you know, we have to all play our part and actually, in our own way, yeah. speak the name of be God. Be watchful Spe and, and say it. Utter it. You must Absolutely. utter it. There's no such thing as... You know, no. And prayer walks schools. are wonderful. Doing laps is wonderful. Yep. But being a voice is just as important. Yep. You have to speak it. You know, mm. we've got teachers now who email me regularly, who literally are now praying through their classrooms, wonderful. and it is just—it's crucial because the the fight for the minds and the hearts of our kids and our young people is now—it's more militant now than yeah. ever. I mean, you saw what the San Francisco Gay Choir did the other yes. day. I mean, come on. It's just shocking, absolutely shocking. These things will continue yeah. if people don't jump up and down about yeah. them. Um, same with, you know, City of Perth. You know, a lot of companies or a lot of councils now have very extensive inclusion yeah. policies at the exclusion of everything else. Yeah. It's the irony well, you of it can't, too. Well, you can't be inclusive and not exclude. Yes, yes. You but know. see, they don't understand that reasoning. Yeah. You know, it's it's inclusion and for some. They're not sorting the problem. But they, not they're for just others. bringing a, a band-aid solution, yes. which is very temporary. And of course, we're, we're, we're all for, uh, you know, inclusion. Of course, yeah. we love everybody. But, you know, there comes a point where, um, especially with, with when you see local shires and councils, what they're moving to and, you know, putting things in, in legislation to make it more sure. difficult for, for religious organisations to have a voice. Look at history. Nobody yeah. cared for the vulnerable and no. for the marginalised as much as Christians. Oh did. no, no. Even you, today, they still that's do. That's right. Yeah. So, yeah. In fact, all these people that have all these crises, they need Christians. <laughs> yes, and you know what? On that, I remember with the election campaign, I said to one of the members of parliament because she said to me, "Oh." Um, 
oh, you know, we need less religion, less religion. I said, can I be completely frank with you? If we had less religion, you would not be able to cope with the welfare and the social services aspect of your electorate because yeah. the churches, the soup kitchens, Salvation yeah. Arms, all these organisations... They do all the hard they work. They do all the hard do. work. And it's all volunteer-driven. Exactly. So and There's no cost them. to the community, no cost to, right? no, no cost to right. the government. Exactly. Remove them from yeah. an electorate. Well, let me tell you, Society you are going falls to apart. Have, Yes. Yeah. So no other religion, in fact, no. apart from Christianity, gets involved. Provides that. That's right. In in, in that you know hands of right. feet. Exactly, and it's that intrinsic motivation, yeah. of course, that we know that that drives people. Um, so you know we have to be be bold and 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 que not question but challenge yeah. a lot of those statements on it because the reality is we won't be able to fund a quarter of the services that the church is providing. I believe every. Uh, primary school and high school should have a church within it. Yeah. Gosh, what if, a difference that would if make. We, hey? If we stop thinking about church mm. the traditional way, yes. and if, even if we start in every primary school a church <laughs> in their yes. hall or in their undercover area, whatever area yes. they have, yes, that would be a great start. Yeah. But and, uh, yeah. the issue is not, you know, kids are open. Of course this they This is are. the thing. Parents it's, are open. But it's, we've, as a society, we've just so created this this anti-God, anti-religious But Christians thing. are timid. Yeah. And they don't want yeah. to voice it. Well, that's what we said, you know, it's a, it's a big wake-up call for the church. Yeah. Absolutely. Especially now. It is an opportunity, but it is a big wake-up call yeah. for the church. Yeah. Well, I hope we do wake up. Eh? Yeah, I think, uh, yeah, I can already see even after the election, a big part of it was praying into suburbs and, uh, you know, raising up prayer altars around the place. And, and you know, people need to realise it takes time. Yeah. And it, it's, it's not just an instant, okay, quick pray. You know, this is spiritual warfare. Yeah. We need to stop being so weak in, in our... Uh, understanding of what that means like this yeah. is this is really like getting on your knees and interceding and praying for Pressing our nation in. and our yeah. leaders yeah. Um, because there's so much at stake yeah. so it's that spiritual tenacity I think it's that maturity and understanding that's going to be key is when the church is unified uh, in that mission and understanding how important it is to pray and intercede for our nation what shift would you like to leave behind you from your political life um, the you know, I think the legacy side for me is for young people to have a platform where they can still feel emboldened. You know, I often think like what we're doing, young people and our church kids, they're looking at us. Sure. They're, they're all looking, how do those people around me in church interact with the conversations, the yeah. issues? They're looking at us for yeah. that. So for me, I want to make sure that I'm actually as emboldened as I can be, as unashamed as I can be, as yeah. as loving God as much as I can and modeling that to them yeah. so that they know there is nothing wrong with that. And when you put God first, yeah. you can't go wrong. That's right. You know, we don't have to hide our faith. Yeah. We don't have to be ashamed about our faith. We don't have to be ashamed about what is right and That's what right. is true. Yeah. So for me, a big part of, of the legacy of what we all should be wanting to leave behind is a space where young people know who they are in Christ. They're yeah. praying, they understand God, they yeah. love God, and they're not afraid of the truth. Beautiful. Hmm. 
Well, you are already doing that shift. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you. I've learned a lot tonight. Oh, good. It's been and, a blessing uh, to share it. It's beautiful. The resilience yeah. and the tenacity you have as well to yeah. carry on. And what I love about you is that you're doing it with enthusiasm. Yes. Yeah. It's not just it a job. It's, no, it's a life. That's right. Which is it's beautiful. Life. Yes. You know, yeah. that's beautiful. Awesome. Well, what an amazing story, eh? <laughs> we love it, don't we? Uh, what a beautiful agenda as well to help everyone out there, especially the children, the generations that come after us, uh, by modeling a life worth living, by modeling a life with a voice, by displaying Christianity, by proving this, uh, this Christianity that we live and the truth that we have in our hearts and making sure that it's caught by the generations that follow after us. Thank you for watching. Thank you for being with us. Thank you for sharing this content. Thank you for the five stars we get on Apple Podcasts. They all matter. We love you. We thank you. And uh, yeah, get on online to Australian Christians and uh, make a donation and become a member and lobby with them the amazing things that they are doing. And when voting comes around, make sure that you put your name right there, wherever it needs to be. Vote with uh, boldness and vote with courage and support everything that this nation needs for the future. We bless you. Thank you for joining us on Kingdom Stories from Down Under. We'd love it if you would subscribe, rate and share these stories with your wider community. And remember, every story is worth sharing, including yours.